The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And this is the inerrant and infallible word of our God. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And now please turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 25. And this is our New Testament reading and our sermon text this morning. We just heard that wonderful prophecy uh, from Isaiah of the, uh, of the future that awaits of the people of God. What Isaiah calls the new heavens and new earth, a renewed creation. Uh, the Apostle Paul in this passage in Romans, he refers to as the, uh, uh, the liberating of creation from its uh, bondage to corruption. And so let's hear um, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 25, also um, a promise of this hope that awaits us as the people of God. Starting at verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation or the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Today we are bringing to a conclusion the series of messages uh, that we have been engaged with 
on the order of salvation, or if you prefer the the Latin term, the ordo salutis. And it might be helpful uh, just to review uh, where we have been the last uh, few months as we have been going through this topic. Uh, First, we uh, covered calling. Calling, this is God's first work in bringing us to salvation. Uh, God calls us uh, by his spirits uh, out of our bondage to sin and death and into the freedom of his people. And along with calling is regeneration. Uh, The spirit causes you to be born again. He makes you alive with Jesus Christ. And after regeneration, after we are renewed in this way by the grace of God, God gives us the gift of faith and repentance, faith to come to Jesus, to believe in him, uh, to receive him as our savior from sin and death and repentance, uh, to turn away from sin and to turn towards Jesus Christ in faith. Also, after after that grace is justification, God justifies us in Christ. He forgives us of all our sins and he counts us as righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and for Christ's sake. And then with justification is adoption. God brings you into his family. He makes you his child. And then there is sanctification. God's spirit works in you continually to conform you to the image of Christ so that you increasingly live to righteousness and die to sin. And then finally, well, not finally, but almost finally, what we considered a couple of weeks ago is perseverance by God's grace. He gives you the power. He gives you the ability. He enables you to walk in the way of salvation until he brings you into your eternal home. And all of these blessings come to us through Jesus Christ. It is by virtue of our being united to Christ by faith that we receive all of these salvation blessings. And today we're going to consider God's final act or his final work of grace towards us as his people in this order of salvation. And that is glorification, glorification. As a believer in Jesus Christ, on the day that Jesus returns to earth, you will be glorified. That means that God will raise you up from the grave that you might live forever and ever in a renewed creation, a new heavens, a new earth. And as we look at our passage from Romans, Romans chapter 8, we'll consider three truths about glorification. First of all, you will be glorified with Christ. Uh, Secondly, you will be glorified at the renewal of creation. And thirdly, you will be glorified in the resurrection of your body. But the first truth is this, is that you will be glorified with Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 8 here in Romans in verse 17, uh, the apostle says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says that we might be glorified with him. And so the promise here is that we will be glorified with our Savior, Jesus Christ. When he enters into his his ultimate glory, we too will be glorified. We have the same promise in Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so our glorification, this promise that God has given us, this is part of something far, far greater than ourselves, but we will be glorified with Christ. When Jesus 
returns in the revelation in the fullness of his divine glory. Now, the first time that Jesus came into the world, he did not come in glory. He did not come at all in glory, at least in outward glory and splendor, which could be seen with the eye. But rather, he came in lowliness. He came in apparent, seeming weakness. Although Jesus, as the Son of God, was eternally divine, equal with God the Father in power and glory, fully God, nevertheless, when the Son of God took on human flesh in his incarnation, he emptied himself. That means he set aside his divine glory. He remained God, and yet he did not come in the fullness of that glory. He made himself nothing. He became a servant to others. Jesus even lowered himself to the point of suffering that most humiliating uh, death, crucifixion. No one who saw Jesus nailed to the cross, dying that painful and shameful death, would have said, behold the glory of the Son of God. Nobody could see it. Only faith could see glory at that point. But when Jesus comes again, he will not come in the way that he came the first time. That is, in a state of humiliation and lowliness, apparent weakness. Rather, he will come again in the fullness of his divine greatness, his majesty, his splendor. As Jesus himself said, he will come in the glory of his Father with his holy, with his holy angels. And at this point, I want to raise this question with you. Are you prepared for his coming? Are you prepared for his coming? In glory. If you in this life have come to Jesus Christ by faith, if he is your savior from sin and death, if you belong to him by faith, then his coming for you will be a day of joy and exaltation because he will come back to earth. He will come for you as your beloved savior to bring you into his eternal kingdom. But if you in this life, if you fail to come to Christ by faith, if you do not come to Jesus in humility and meekness, if you do not receive him as your Lord and Savior, if you do not submit to him as your Lord, his coming again in glory will be for you a day of unspeakable dread and terror because he will not come to you on that day as your Savior, but he will come to you as your judge to judge you for your sins. And that judgment apart from Christ can only be a judgment of condemnation. Just as surely as Christ came into the world the first time, so he is coming again a second time. He is coming again a second time. And so again, the question is, are you prepared to meet him when he returns? Turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, so that his coming again will be for you a day of salvation. And if your hope is in Jesus Christ, and I trust that it is, if your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then his coming again will not only be for you a day of salvation, but it will also be for you a day of glory, the day of your glory. And I'll explain what that means. But we will be glorified at the coming of Christ. Again, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is... The will of God, this is his purpose in Jesus Christ and for us as his people. That in some sense, when Christ returns 
in the fullness of His divine glory, we shall in some way take part in that. We shall share in it. We shall also be glorified with Christ. Well, how will that be possible when Christ is the one who deserves all the glory? He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has accomplished our salvation. How will we be glorified in Christ? Well, one way, perhaps, that helps us to think about this is to use an analogy from the world of sports. If you're a baseball fan, imagine that your favorite team wins the World Series. Uh, Right now, my favorite team isn't doing so well, so that's a little hard to imagine. But imagine that your favorite team wins the World Series. And of course, as a fan, you are watching the game, but that's all you're doing. You're cheering them on, but you did absolutely nothing to help your team win that game or win the World Series. You didn't take the field in a uniform. You didn't hit a home run. You didn't strike anybody out. You just were there passively watching the game. But because this is your team, because you identify With this team. This is your team. Just as much as the players on the field celebrate their triumph, their victory, so you too, as a fan, you celebrate, you exalt, you rejoice in the victory that your team has won. And that's because, as a fan, your identity is wrapped up with your team. In a sense, you belong to that team. And so their victory is your victory. And in the same way, but in a far, far more important way, infinitely more important way, because you belong to Jesus Christ, because your identity is in Jesus Christ. Therefore, his triumph is your triumph. His glory is your glory. And so on that day when Jesus Christ returns, yes, he alone will be the object of the praise, the adoration, the worship of all creation. All creation will be giving glory to Christ as the Son of God and the Lord of all. Nevertheless, because you belong to Christ, because he is the firstborn among many brothers, because he is not ashamed to call us his brothers, because we are his, therefore, we will take part in that glory. His glory will be our glory. His triumph will be our triumph. But there is another side to that coin. As wonderful as it is to consider that we will be glorified with Christ in his coming again, the Apostle Paul reminds us that there is another side to that. And that is, if we will be glorified with Christ, then we must suffer with Christ now. Paul says in verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The scriptures tell us over and over that the Christian life involves suffering. It is an inescapable aspect of following Christ in this world that we can expect to suffer. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. No no Christian is exempt from suffering in this world, but the promise that God makes to you and me is that he will infinitely compensate our suffering in this life with a glory and a joy that cannot be measured In the life to come. In verse 18, we read this For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Apostle Paul wrote these words, and he also described so much of what he suffered as an apostle of Jesus. And when you read what he suffered, the last thing you think of is this is light momentary affliction. None of us would ever want to suffer as he did. And yet he was able to say, this is nothing compared to in comparison with that glory that one day will be ours when our Lord Jesus comes again. And so you suffer with Christ now, but then you will be glorified with him. And that makes all your suffering in this world, in in comparison, seem like light and momentary affliction. And so the first truth about glorification is that you will be glorified with Jesus. Secondly, you will be glorified along with or at uh, the renewal of all creation. So look at verses 19 through 21. I'll read those verses. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord, ever since they sinned against God, and of course, their sin was our sin. Ever since that time, the world and all of creation has been burdened by the curse of God that he laid upon the ground. We live in a sin-cursed world. And these verses tell us that creation itself is waiting with eager longing when it will be set free from this bondage to corruption. That's what bondage to corruption is referring to, the fact that this creation is cursed because of sin. And when will creation be set free from its present bondage? Paul says in verse 19 that it will be on the day when there is the revealing of the sons of God. And that revealing of the sons of God in verse 19, that is the same thing that Paul refers to in verse 21 as the glory of the children of God. And so God will liberate this present creation. He will renew this creation. He will do what Isaiah calls the the bringing in, the inauguration of a new heavens and a new earth. But he will do this at the very same time that he will bring his people to glory in our resurrection from the dead. And so all of this will take place at the same time. God will raise us up from our graves. And at that same time, he will bring that renewal, that transformation to the creation that has been cursed by God because of sin. And so your hope as a Christian is not only your glorification, with Christ at the coming again of Jesus, but that you will be glorified along with the renewal of all creation. And part of the glory, part of the promise that we have of glory is that we will live forever in a renewed heavens and earth. And this is not just pie in the sky, wishful thinking, but this promise is based, it comes to us in the word of God, God's infallible word. And so it is a sure sure promise, a certain promise. It is a tragedy that so many in this world who do not know Christ, they have nothing but despair for the future of humanity and for the future of the world, even the future of creation. Several years ago, the late physicist Stephen Hawking, 
he warned us that the human race only has about 100 years left on this planet before we will all be destroyed by climate change or in other kinds of cataclysmic uh, disasters that will come upon us. And the hope that he held out to us is that if we are able to colonize another planet, the human race can survive. Now that's an extreme example, but this bleak and desperate outlook for those who have no, it is typical of the bleak and desperate outlook for those who have no hope in God or in his promises. The human race, the world we live in, perhaps all of creation itself, is one day, according to this understanding, according to this unbelieving view, all of it is one day doomed to destruction. And when that takes place, all of human history, all of the lives that we have lived, everything that has ever taken place will all amount to nothing more than one gigantic accident. It will all be meaningless. There is no hope in that. It is despairing. But praise God that we have hope. God has given us true hope, and that is not only his purpose to redeem us, which he has done in Christ, to bring us into glory, but to restore what he has created and called very good, his creation. And this new heavens and earth that God will bring with the coming of Christ, this will never, ever, ever again be subjected to the ravages of evil and sin. Satan no longer will have any influence in the new creation. Evil will never make its ugly intrusion into what God created and called very good. God promises in Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so this is part of the promise that God makes to us in glorification. Not just that we will be saved from condemnation, but that we will live this resurrection life in a new creation forever and ever. Thirdly, you will be glorified in the resurrection of your body. Paul tells us in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth as it waits for this day when God will make all things new. And then he says in verse 23, if you look at verse 23, he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So along with creation, we who have received the Spirit of Christ by faith in Christ, we also are groaning inwardly as we wait for what will be that final act of God's grace in our adoption, what is called here the redemption of our bodies, which means the resurrection of our bodies. And this resurrection of our bodies from death to life, from the grave uh, into the new heavens and earth, this is what Paul refers to in verse 21 as the glory of the children of God. And so our glorification is essentially the same thing as our resurrection. That is when we'll be, we will be glorified. And what a, what a wonderful promise this is. For we who live in this world, our bodies are subject to the ravages, disease. What a glorious promise that one day we will be raised up in bodies that will be immortal and imperishable forever. Many years ago, my sister was fighting to survive the effects of a bone marrow transplant. Uh, she had to have this 
bone marrow transplant because of leukemia. Uh, in the end, she lost the fight. She, she passed away. And in the process, for a couple of years, she suffered tremendously physically. Her body uh, suffered because of the complications related to the treatment she was taking, uh, because of the powerful medication uh, that she had to take in order to alleviate other problems that she had because of this treatment. And one year at Christmas time, I asked her what she wanted for Christmas, and she told me, and she was half joking, half serious, she told me, what I want is a new body. I want a new body. Of course, I could not give that to her. If I could, I would have. But I know she would have given anything for a new body. And anybody who has suffered in this life from a disease or from a terrible injury, that person wants nothing more than a new body. A body that works. A body that is not ravaged by cancer or disease. A body that is not maimed by injuries. A body that is not bound to a wheelchair or to a hospital bed. A body that is not racked by pain. Now, God has been merciful and gracious to most of us. He has spared us from that kind of physical suffering. Not all of us. There are some among us that, that know what that's like from experience. But even if God spares us from that kind of extreme suffering in the body, we will all experience the deterioration of our bodies, the weakening of our bodies, the increasing limitations that we will have with our bodies because of age. But this is one of the glorious things about God's saving grace to us in Christ is that one day he will give us new bodies. And what this means is that as a Christian, what your hope is in Christ is not that you will be freed from the body to live as a spirit in the presence of God forever. Now, to be sure, that is part of the hope that God gives us. Paul says of Philippians that it is better for him to depart and to be with Christ. Uh, to be with Christ, even apart from the body, will be a state of bliss and joy and rest. But this is not the primary hope that the Scripture holds out to us, but consistently the Word of God tells us that our hope as Christians is not to be freed from our bodies forever, but to be raised up in new bodies. Right after Paul talks about the redemption of our bodies in verse 23, he says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. We were not saved in the hope that one day we will be strumming on harps in some ethereal existence in the clouds. But we are saved in this hope, the resurrection of our bodies. In a material, physical world that once again will be very, very, very good. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what our resurrection bodies will be like. But it does tell us that our bodies will be radically transformed from the bodies that we have now. The scripture compares our present bodies to a seed. And just like a humble seed is sown into the ground and then it is transformed into this glorious plant or tree. So our bodies will be raised up in a glory that we don't now possess. 1 Corinthians 15 42 and 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So we will be raised up in bodies that are, in one sense, the same body, but in another sense, a transformed, a new body. 
I think of the television shows like uh, Chip and Joanne Gaines, Fixer Upper, where a team of people show up to this old, decrepit, ramshackle house that's falling apart and looks terrible, and uh, they get to work on the house, and they do such an amazing renovation that the house is barely recognizable, even to the owners. And what they do is they don't just restore the house to what it looked like when it was built 50 years ago, but they make it into something far more glorious than that. And yet it is the same house. It is the same place. They don't just tear it down and build it from scratch, but they, they transform it. They renovate it. And that is similar, I believe, to what God will do with our bodies. The same body and yet marvelously new and different. And part of that glory of our resurrection will be that in whatever ways our bodies are damaged or limited by the curse of sin in this world, God will give us a complete restoration and healing. And Jesus gave us a picture of that when he came in his earthly ministry. He, he, he gave us a picture of the glories of his coming kingdom when he healed those who were sick and he gave sight to the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He gave hearing to the deaf. He showed us in this way that this was the work that he would one day accomplish for his people. Physical restoration, physical healing, a transformation of our bodies. And so this is the hope that we have, that if there is any way in which you are not whole, not complete in your body because of illness, injury, disease, or whatever, God will make you whole that day. I once knew a man named Steve who was a member of a church where I served as an intern. And when he was a baby or a toddler, he suffered some sort of crippling disease that left him with virtually no control whatsoever over his body. Uh, He wasn't able to talk. Uh, He wasn't able to walk. Uh, He was bound in a wheelchair. Uh, He had to be taken care of uh, by other people. Uh, He could communicate by typing. He was able to use his fingers well enough to type uh, words into a little machine that he had so he could communicate. And thankfully, his mind was perfectly intact. Uh, But his body literally became for him a prison. He was trapped in his own body. And I can't wait one day to see Steve at the resurrection in a body that will be made entirely new. And I can picture him now in the resurrection, standing tall, walking, running, leaping for joy, speaking with a loud, clear voice. What a hope this must be for someone like him, the hope of the resurrection from the dead. And insofar as we all suffer in our bodies, This resurrection hope is a glorious hope. Sometimes it seems almost too good to be true, but it is true. Believe it. This is the promise that God makes to you in his word, that he will raise you up in a resurrected body. One unbelieving scholar said this. He said, what the end and purpose of history is, I do not know and nobody knows. Again, a view of the world that has no hope. But praise God, that's not true. We can know what God has in store for us and for the world because he has revealed that to us in his word. And his purpose for all things is that one day his son, Jesus Christ, will be glorified. That Jesus Christ will receive all the praise and the worship and the adoration that belongs to him as the son of God as the Savior of sinners. 
And on that great day, you and I will be fully conformed to Christ in holiness and righteousness. He will come in glory. We will share in that glory. And then, finally, God's purposes in creation and providence, they will have been finally brought to completion in the glorification of His Son and in bringing many sons to glory with Jesus. And the wonderful thing is that for us as Christians, that's really not the end at all. It's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. It is the beginning of eternal blessedness. And you will be eternally blessed, not just because you will live forever, but you will be eternally blessed because you will then do what God has created you to do. You will then do perfectly in fullness what God created you to do, and that is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our shorter catechism tells us that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Question number one. And then in question 38, the answer says that in the resurrection, we believers will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. And as we come now to the end of our study of this order of salvation, now we see with glorification in view the why of what God has done for us. Why did he set us apart? Why did he set us apart before the foundation, before the creation of the world in Christ Jesus? Why did he call you and me to faith in Christ? Why did he regenerate us? Why did he justify us, adopt us? Why is he sanctifying us? It is all for this purpose that one day that we might be raised up in glory so that all the glory will go to Jesus Christ for this salvation. And then God through Christ, in Christ, he will be glorified forever as you and I find our greatest joy in him. And so your glorification is one at the same, it is one at the same time. It is both for God's everlasting glory, but your glorification is also for your everlasting joy. And this is the promise that God makes to us in this hope of glorification. Let's pray. Father, thank you.